Natural MD Radio, your place to hear the whole truth on health and medicine for women and children and get the tools you need to take back your health naturally starting now. I'm Dr. Aviva Ram. Hello and welcome back to Natural MD Radio. This is Aviva and I say welcome back because as you know, if you have been a listener for a while, I have been on a little bit of a hiatus. It wasn't one that I meant to take, but I had a book to write and another book to edit all in the last three months. And ironically, my book is the one I'm writing is called The Adrenal Thyroid Revolution. And I kind of had to walk my talk writing that book and not push myself beyond what was sort of humanly possible when writing a book in 12 weeks and being a mom and a doctor with a practice and running a business and all those things that we all do in our own various ways that don't stop when something else comes up. So I am so grateful for your wonderful emails and caring and kindness and support. And so many of you have written, thank you for setting an example of being someone who does push the pause button. That's a big piece of what my next book is about. So I wasn't intending to be a wonder woman in the last 12 weeks, but it's been a bit crazy and it is so great to be back in the flow of the podcast. I sent my book off last night, the next to kind of like next to last round of big edits and super exciting. The book, The Adrenal Thyroid Revolution is coming out in January. So speaking of Wonder Women, today's podcast is such a pleasure for me to bring to you because it not only gives me the opportunity to have some girl chat time with one of my very long-term dear friends, Dr. Tierone Lodog, but it really gives me a chance to bring you a true Wonder Woman. And when I say that, what I mean is if there were a superhero in natural medicine on this planet, it's this woman. I've known Tironi for 25 years, I guess now, and we share some pretty amazing parallels in our lives that actually her son said to her one day, Mama, did you realize that you and Aviva are both midwives? You're both herbalists. You both left home early. You both are doctors. You were both the president of the American Herbalist Guild at some time or another, and you both homeschooled your kids which is pretty phenomenal. And so we're true soul sisters on so many levels, but even our path trajectory is very similar. And, you know, this is one of these women that even though we are absolutely dear friends, I can also step back and just admire her power. She is a force of nature. Let me give you a little bit more on her sort of technical background Tirone, Dr. Lodog, her exploration of natural medicine and its role in modern healthcare began over 35 years ago when she studied midwifery, herbal medicine, massage therapy, and martial arts before becoming a medical doctor, which she eventually did at the University of New Mexico School of Medicine. She currently serves as the fellowship director for the Academy of Integrative Health and Medicine. This is a two-year fellowship, and it's the first integrative interdisciplinary program in the world committed to training teams of medical doctors, dentists, pharmacists, nursing professionals, 
PAs, dietitians, acupuncturists, naturopathic physicians, and chiropractors in integrative health and medicine. Dr. Lodog is a founding member of the American Board of Physician Specialties, American Board of Integrative Medicine, and the Academy of Women's Health. She's an internationally recognized expert in the fields of integrative medicine, dietary supplements, and women's health. She was appointed by President Bill Clinton to the White House Commission on Complementary and Alternative Medicine Policy. She has served as the elected chair of the U.S. Pharmacopeia Dietary Supplements and Botanical Expert Information Panel, and she was appointed to the Scientific Advisory Council for the National Center for Complementary and Alternative Medicine. She previously served as the Education and Fellowship Director at the University of Arizona Center for Integrative Medicine between 2005 and 2014, where she oversaw all aspects of the training for more than 600 physicians and nurse practitioners in integrative medicine. When I tell you this woman put integrative medicine on the map in medical schools, hospitals, and doctor's offices, she really was instrumental in doing that. She's been an invited speaker to more than 500 scientific and medical conferences. She's published 40 peer-reviewed articles, written 20 chapters for medical textbooks, and has authored five books, including three National Geographic books, some of which we're going to talk about today, Fortify Your Life, Healthy at Home, and Life is Your Best Medicine. She's appeared on CNN, ABC's 2020, is a frequent guest on The Dr. Oz Show, and NPR's The People's Pharmacy. And for those of you listening, a few extra little tidbits. She is a homeschool mama, a home birth mama, and this woman really walks her talk. You know, she lives at 6,500 feet altitude or more in her home in the Southwest where she grows her own food, lives in a hand-built house that she and her partner built, and raises animals, rides her horses every day, and lives super close to the land. She brings ceremony into her life. She brings such grace to this planet. And I can't be more happy to introduce you to my dear friend, Tyrone Lodog, as we talk about the role of supplements in women's health, the role of supplements in public health in general, and the importance of specific supplements for pregnant women and our babies. And I hope you'll stick through to the end because we also talk about the importance of taking care of ourselves. In my new book, I talk a lot about how as women, we need to put on our oxygen masks first. And this is something Dr. Lodog and I are both practicing more and more in our own lives. And if I could ask you to give a huge round of applause and we were able to hear that on the podcast, that's what I'd be doing right now. Welcome, Tirone. Not too long ago, the New York City Attorney General's office took some supplement samples off of health food store shelves, ran DNA fingerprint testing on them, found them to come up short on the match between the actual contents and ingredient claims. And the next thing we knew, as is typical, news headlines were filled with stories about how supplements are a farce, they're a waste of money, they are even dangerous. Naturally, this led to a lot of consumers who want to improve their health, possibly with supplements, and a lot of doctors to be concerned about the safety and quality of supplements. It led to me getting dozens of emails. But also when I go and speak at conferences, what supplements are safe? How do we pick supplements? All these questions are so pressing for people. So I'd love to start talking with you even about just whether we even need supplements. I know we're both a huge 
fan of food first and food as medicine, but also according to the World Health Organization, most Americans are magnesium deficient. We know both of us from our clinical work that a lot of folks are low in vitamin D. We know that Americans are classically, typically low in essential fatty acids. So what are your thoughts on whether folks need supplements to start? Well, I think that um, there, there were a number of there were a number of lines in there that you talked about. I think first, I, I just want to clarify that that uh, the New York Attorney General they look specifically at herbal supplements. So we we often lump supplements as one big category. They looked specifically at herbal products, and um, I do think that we still have a ways to go when it comes with our herbal products in the marketplace. But DNA testing, just for the record is not quite ready for prime time. Um, An example of that is I was out in my own herb garden um, just the other day, and I was harvesting um, some chamomile. But my chamomile grows in the same bed as peppermint does and catnip. They're, They're all growing in this nice big bed together. It would be foolish to think that there may not be a trace of DNA from from the pollen or or any DNA from any other plant that was in a bed out in nature um, that wasn't that wasn't chamomile because because they're all growing sort of side by side so DNA testing I think is going to become more important for identity of raw materials in the future but it's not recognized actually as an analytical test by any authoritative organization in the world it's not quite ready for prime time it's not to say that the herbal industry doesn't need to do better um, but that's that's a. I wish they would have gone and used standard tests that we recognize. I've chaired the United States Pharmacopeia Dietary Supplements panels, various panels, for almost 18 years. That's all we do is quality and standards. And and so I, I think that there are good companies making herbal products out there. People could feel very comfortable with. But herbs are more complicated than vitamins and minerals, and that's what you were then talking about. You were talking about magnesium and vitamin D, et cetera. Vitamins and minerals are easier to identify, they're easier to make and produce, and there's good quality standards for them. And most people, when they're buying basic vitamins and minerals, are getting what they think they're getting. I believe that many Americans do need to supplement their diet because we eat terribly. We eat lots of processed foods. We eat a lot of junk foods. One in four Americans, according to the Centers for Disease Control, one in four Americans eats less than one serving of fruit or vegetable per day. I mean, think about that. Less than one. That's like, what is that? A half a serving? I mean, it's crazy. According to the CDC, 90 million Americans have vitamin D levels that are, according to the American Endocrine Society, deficient. 90 million Americans, 30 million Americans. That's basically every man, woman, and child living in New York, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., Miami, Houston, San Francisco, Portland, and Seattle. That's how many people we're talking about are frankly deficient in vitamin B6. So, you know, there's a lot of nutrient deficiencies that we know through measuring people's blood or measuring people's urine. The CDC does does actually biomonitoring, so they're actually looking at biochemical indicators, not just dietary surveys. We know that many of us are are coming up short when it comes to nutrients. So I do think a lot of people probably benefit from taking a very basic multiple vitamin and mineral 
that's appropriate for their age and their gender and their menstrual status. It's so interesting to think about the medical problems that are rampant now. When I think about B vitamins, I think about anxiety and depression. When I think about vitamin D, I think about everything from immune status to metabolism. And when we think about the diseases that are really now so chronic that people just almost assume it's a fact of life that you're going to have some anxiety or depression or a fact of life that by the time you reach a certain age, you're going to have some chronic disease, yet we have this kind of insidious insufficiency or frank deficiency going on. It's really scary to think about that, actually. It is. And, you know, over the years, you think about the women that you've seen, you know, and that I've seen that have come in with kind of low energy and irritability and depression and um, just sort of lack of lack of chi, you know, lack of life. And um, women, we know, are twice as likely to be B6 deficient than men, and we know that oral contraceptives um, definitely deplete B6. Um, how many of those women were ending, you know, ended up going on Zoloft or going for counseling or, you know, were put on St. John's where, you know, pick whichever path you took, but all the counseling in the world will not correct an actual nutritional deficiency. Zoloft may make more serotonin stick around, but if B6 is required to make serotonin and melatonin, you can't make, you cannot produce serotonin without it, you can't make melatonin without it. So all the people with insomnia, all the people with sleep problems, and so they're taking, you know, either the, the Ambien or the Lunesta or they're taking the Valerian and the Hops, right? I mean, people are taking things to try to treat these symptoms. And to my, my experience, doctors never check vitamin B6 levels. They're just not, it's not done. I was at a conference um, speaking, it was the, the Scripps Dietary Supplements Conference, a big conference, um, mostly medical doctors and that that attended, 700 participants out in the audience, and I asked them honestly how many times they had checked what we call a pyridoxal 5-phosphate or a PLP level for B6 in, in, a, in a patient who came in that was maybe feeling kind of depressed. One doctor raised his hand, and he's at Mayo Clinic. 699 physicians sitting out there never have ordered it in their entire career. And yet, this is what I mean. So some of these messages, Aviva, are dangerous to me, and they're not scientifically founded. When these blanket statements come out and say, people don't need multivitamins or people don't need supplements, then I'm sort of like, that's, that's, a, that's not substantiated by the science. It's not substantiated by the evidence. Um, and, it, and it can be dangerous, particularly amongst populations that are socioeconomically disadvantaged, where those deficiencies can actually cause, you know, problems with premature labor, premature birth. You know, we have, we have more than one in ten Mexican-American children between the ages of one and five in the United States, more than one in ten, who have such low iron body stores, whose iron levels are so low that it will cause irreparable damage to their ability to learn for the rest of their lives. So, you know, parents ask me, well, do my, does my child need a, a vitamin? Well, it depends upon what the child's eating, the, the, the level of food security in the family. 
any sort of genetic predispositions to risk, um, how picky the child is about eating. There's so many factors that go into it. You know, I don't do public health. I take care of individual people. So it's, it's, I'm not making policy recommendations for the entire universe. I'm, I, I sit in a room and talk to one person at a time. So when I'm helping them make decisions about what they need, it's really based upon their individual presentation. But I, I'll tell you this, I have no doubt, no doubt whatsoever, that a considerable millions, when I say considerable number, I mean millions of people in the United States are taking medications for symptoms that are probably caused by not having enough nutrients. And the reverse is also true. They're taking medications that deplete their body of nutrients and nobody's replacing them. Wow. Yes. Yes and yes. I feel often that there's almost like a level of not-so-subtle nutritional genocide going on. And, and it's not just one group that's targeted, but what I've seen working in outlying clinics in very low socioeconomic settings is really just sort of an amplified version of what we're all experiencing. But that level of amplification, it's learning disabilities. It's also things like anxiety and depression that lead to social behaviors, violence, addiction. It's incredibly sad. And you know, T, I went to Yale, as you know, because you actually wrote a letter of recommendation for me, which was awesome. <laughs> I knew talent when I forever. saw it. <laughs> of course, of course. And in seven years between med- medical school and residency, and I went to a medical residency in primary care, internal medicine, and then I did my finished my residency at a school known for nutrition. In all seven years, I had two scheduled classes on nutrition, 50 minutes each, 5-0, and one of those was canceled because the teacher had something else to do that day. So thankfully, I went into medical school with 25 years of prior knowledge about food, lifestyle, and nutrition, but my, but 199 of my classmates, there were 100 of us in the class, came out with 50 minutes of education in food, health, and and preventing disease with this, and it's astonishing. And so, oh, so much content here to think about and talk about. Let's talk about some of the really big conditions then. Let's focus on anxiety and depression because I'm just shocked. You know, you mentioned Zoloft. You mentioned a few other medications, but I'm actually astonished at the number of physicians that are doling out benzodiazepine drugs, which are highly addictive and carry lots of lifelong cognitive potential consequences, like candy, what would be some of your first approaches that you would take if you had a woman come in with depression and anxiety? How would you look at her diet and help her figure out what she needs nutritionally? Right. And, and you know, I'm not opposed to medication. Sometimes, you know, um, an individual with extreme anxiety may be so close to the edge that giving her um giving her actually a prescription for a medication um, like a benzodiazepine um, is not always wrong um, because sometimes helping her take the edge off while you're making these lifestyle changes, which are going to take several months, um, may be absolutely appropriate. My big problem with the prescription of benzodiazepines for anxiety is that it seems to be what people then assume is the answer. 
so it's not like a temporary stopgap while we're helping people from falling into the abyss. It's just sort of like, now we've done our job. We have yep. given you the medication, and you're going to be on this medication for years. So I, I guess I want to just set the stage because sometimes I do prescribe them for short periods of times in small amounts while we're doing other things. When I do as well. I has really you. severe yep. forms. So anybody who's listening, I, I I just want them to know that that it's not. I don't think that they're ever appropriate. But then it comes back to where the anxiety is coming from, what's driving it, what fuels it, what triggers it. And, and really starting to get it at what situations are you in where you're feeling this sense of anxiety. I do think that a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy and counseling is vitally important. It's what allows people to reframe things that causes them these feelings of anxiety. And then at the same time, it's about, okay, now let's think about if we want to pay the farmer now or if we want to pay the pharmacist later, right? I mean, that saying is like, You've got to start thinking about how food truly is your medicine. And, and so we, we need to go back to the basics. I, you know, I know we don't talk about the five food groups, but when you get down to it, people actually really do need. They need fruits and vegetables. They need some grains. They need some meat and fish. I mean, it goes back to how human beings evolved. Aviva, we've evolved over this long period of time. And humans can eat all kinds of things because we're pretty good scavengers. We can eat whatever's around us. But nothing in our history, nothing in our biology has prepared us for the last 60 years of food, which is highly refined, highly processed, highly convenient, and nutrient depleted. Um, so it, it comes back to things not out of a box, as wholesome as, as can be, and making sure that you're actually getting you know, that, that you eat things that are truly nourishing for you. Where are you getting your choline? You know, I, I'm going to give you an interesting study about anxiety um, because it, it takes it back a step further. So there's a lot of things I can do for a 20- or 30-year-old woman with anxiety, but how would I prevent it in the next generation? That's, that, to me, is even going further up the stream. How do we, how do we make how do we, how do we help women give birth to children that are more resilient when they're born. Um, and one of the areas of research that fascinates me is on choline. So choline is technically a B vitamin, falls into the B family. And the richest source of it is in liver, and the second richest source is in egg yolk. Yep. When you get down anywhere past liver or egg yolk, you're, you're down in things that are like 60 and 70 milligrams per serving, and you need 450 milligrams a day when you're pregnant and 550 milligrams a day when you're breastfeeding. Average person in America gets, you know, what, 100, 200 milligrams tops. So we're, we're less than half. There was some very interesting research done in both animals and in humans, in women, pregnant women, showing that when there is adequate choline in the diet, that the placenta, it actually choline modulates the effect of stress hormones at the placenta basically providing a protective bubble, if you will, around the baby from the mom's stress hormones. Wow. So the baby has this protective layer. When mom's feeling tremendous stress, it's protecting the baby. The research, if it chose to be true, which we think it will, I mean, all arrows are pointing in the same direction, that when mom gets, gets adequate amounts of choline in her diet, the baby is actually born with a higher stress 
threshold, meaning less risk for anxiety, less risk for depression, and far more resilient nature. What happened when we told everybody liver was toxic and they needed to quit eating egg yolks? Eggs were bad, eggs are good, eggs are bad, eggs are good, eggs are bad. No, eat egg whites. Everybody went to egg white omelets. I think this has been a terrible thing for the American population. Um, the things that people have been eating organ meats forever, and people have been eating eggs of quail and duck and chickens for thousands of years. What we've not been eating are trans fats. We've not been eating Twinkies. We've not been eating fried Twinkies, which I saw when I was in the South not long ago. I mean, those are the things we weren't eating, and that's the stuff you should avoid. But, but so when we think of anxiety and we think of babies being born, uh, you mentioned essential fatty acids. Just as one more side note, since both you and I have midwifery in our background and our genes, there was a study done of African-American women in an urban setting in the United States, and they, and they, were, in, uh, they were poor women. And if they came in between 16 and 20 weeks, they were randomized to either get a placebo or to get omega-3 fatty acids as fish oil. They followed those women and during the third trimester actually measured their cortisol levels compared to 16 and, at the beginning of the trial, 16 weeks. And what they found was that the mother's cortisol levels actually in the omega-3 group were far lower than the women who took the placebo. Now, this is significant because cortisol, which is an indicator of stress, stress hormones, it increases the risk for the baby being born small and also being born early. An African-American woman in the United States still has twice the likelihood that her baby will be die before one year of age than a white woman or an, or an Hispanic woman. And she has a much greater chance that her baby will be born early and small. So here we have this data looking at fish oil in pregnancy in poor African-American women, showing that their cortisol levels actually were lower, they were responding and tolerating stress more effectively in their third trimester, and yet on the news you hear that nobody needs fish oil. So to me, when you talk about nutritional genocide or you talk about, we talk about disparities, I look at this and say, you know, Quit making blanket statements about omega-3s for the entire world. Let's talk about specific populations that may benefit from it. You know, for me, the, the whole tragedy in Flint, Michigan, with the water and the lead, was a double whammy because African-American women, 16% of women 12 to 49 years of age, have frank low iron Many African-American women also are low in calcium because they're lactose intolerant. What are the two things that protect you from lead toxicity? Iron and calcium. They block uptake of lead. So here you had a largely African-American population exposed to lead, and you had a population that, it, by definition, has lower iron and it has lower calcium intake. It's not just... It's not just the children that are being born now in Flint that will be affected. It will be their children's children. It's it, the epigenetics of lead toxicity. They're multigenerational. So this is why sometimes I get a little upset when we talk about nutrition because you have a lot of people who really don't know what they're talking about. 
um, making blanket statements for the entire population. And I am concerned about pregnant women. I am concerned about young children. And I certainly am concerned about elders, many, many of whom the cognitive decline, their problems with memory, their level of fatigue and forgetfulness have a lot to do with having deficits in nutrients that are responsible for giving them energy and helping their minds feel sharp and protecting them from heart disease. Tarona, you you talked about also cortisol in babies and women as well. And there's some really phenomenal research. And it started out with um, the Barker hypothesis looking at the Dutch famine and the impact of famine on uh, fetal nutrition and then adult health, actually. And what was found was that higher cortisol levels, even in pregnancy for the baby, um, can lead to later in life, even in our 40s and our 50s, a significantly increased risk of diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and all the concurrent problems that happen with that, stroke, dementia, et cetera. And one of the areas that also has become of great interest to me, not so much an an herbal or uh, vitamin mineral supplement, but is is the role of probiotics. And I recently uh, found some research talking about how maternal gut health and the maternal flora at the time of birth can set the stress point for the baby and the baby's stress resilience through different but um, also important cortisol pathways just by the way that uh, development of the immune system triggers development of the nervous system and ultimately resilience and cortisol levels so that when women have disruptions in their microbiome, which so many women do, and I think that we, you know, there's a whole lot less we know about the microbiome than we think we do, but nonetheless, this is such an important area of emerging research. What are your thoughts on folks taking probiotics? Do you think most folks need them, take them daily, based on individual digestive health? I think most people need a lot more fermented products in their diet, um, fermented foods, um, my, my folks were just here visiting, and I made sure that I went and got raw, live-cultured sauerkraut because my mother eats sauerkraut, like, daily um, and has for as long as I can remember. And, and my mom's actually pretty healthy. Um, but she, lo- she, she has this belief that you should be getting some sort of fermented food in your diet, you know, pickles or, or kefir or yogurt. And for her, her passion is sauerkraut. We need lots of fermented foods because that's what nourishes and feeds the microbiome. By the time an individual in the United States is 21 years of age, on average, they have taken antibiotics 17 times. It's 17 times. And, and 16 out of those 17 were probably unnecessarily. Totally not at necessary. Least 70% of cases. Totally not necessary. Yeah. Totally not necessary. And when you take those antibiotics, you're, you're disrupting the microbiome. In some research, one single dose of an antibiotic called Cipro disrupts the microbiome, one dose for six months. So this repeated insult to, uh, with this heavy use of antibiotics disturbs the microbiome, and and I think the bigger question is, what do I recommend? Well, I recommend most people take sort of a a multi-strain kind of lactobacillus and bifidobacterium kind of multiple strain, but the truth is we don't know what the optimal strain is for individuals yet. That research is still being done. 
and, and, you know, and NYU, I mean, there's, there's a whole lot of research going on with the Human Microbiome Project. And Marty Blazer, The, the Missing Microbe, I think is just a phenomenal book. Um, but, you know, he postulates, you know, head of the Human Microbiome product, Project, right? So big government-funded study. He talks about the fact that in animal husbandry, we use, we use antibiotics to make animals get big, fat, fast. Right. Yep. That's that's why you use antibiotics, not to keep them healthy, but to get them bigger, fatter, faster. What happens when you give small children repeated doses of antibiotics for ear infections and things like this? His research, their research pretty much shows that children, when you look at them in their teenage years and 20s, those that are heavier tended to have more antibiotics when they were younger. And one of the questions, and, and he makes a very compelling argument in his book, how can we say this is just sugar or calories? It, it hasn't changed that much to account for 60% of the population being as overweight, as obese as they are. And he makes a strong case for this early use of, of antibiotics. Now, the question becomes, you know, can you do something to reverse that? You and I wouldn't use all those antibiotics to begin with in those children, right. but if they are taking them, can you use probiotics to turn it around? Should most be p- people be taking multi-strains? How long? Um, how much? You know, a billion CFUs, 10 billion? Um, it, I think there's a lot of unanswered questions, but but I would agree with you. I think the the human microbiome in another 20 years, we're going to understand it a lot better. For us today now, just kind of, you know, working our way through this clinically and what we do based on what we know, multi-strain probiotics, um, prebiotics, fermented foods, and people should probably be getting these three or four times a week. I'm not sure you need to take a probiotic every day. I think that just like fish oil, I don't take fish oil every day. I take fish oil two, three times a week, just the way I would eat fish. Um, but, but I think people need more essential fatty acids. They need more fermented foods. And probiotics and prebiotics, I think, I think are going, we're going to refine our knowledge and we're going to find that in pregnancy, early childhood, throughout life, they're very important. But when you're in your mother's womb, you know, you're getting, you're getting your, your genes, your genetic code, your blueprint from your mother and your father, but you're not destined to have their genes. Only in the most only in the most devastating of circumstances are we subject to our parents, you know, genetic material. Our environment and that maternal environment, it really, um, that's the epigenetic part. It's, it's, it's what influences the expression of the genes. In genetics, my professor used that quote, which you often hear, that, you know, um, that your, your, your genes load the, get, the gun, yeah, and but, but environment pulls, pulls the trigger. trigger. And, and so... There's so much that we can do um, to, to help us, but as much as possible, you have to think more like a biologist than a chemist. A lot, of, a lot of what we do now is chemical. We're thinking through chemical pathways. You have to get back and start thinking about us as biological creatures and biological animals, and you have to think, how did we evolve over history? We evolved outside in the sun. We evolved being physically active. We evolved having periods of, of less to eat and periods of more to eat. We had animal products in our diet. We ate lots and lots and lots and lots of plant material. And, and we were fairly robust in our lifestyle. Today we're sedentary. We're inside. We lather with sunscreen. 
Uh, many people eat highly processed, um, poor diets. Uh, they eat four or five times a day. They snack. Uh, they never give their body a chance to rest. I think that if you looked at your great-grandparents or your great-great-grandparents, your diet and lifestyle should look a lot more like theirs than probably your parents'. And you mentioned the word rest. You know, I think traditionally we rested so much more than we rest now, and I think so many of us underestimate the impact of lack of sleep on our nutrition, on our cortisol levels, but it can actually be huge. And in addition, when we're tired all the time, we tend to go for the fast, yes. junky foods, the vicious sugar, cycle. The fat. It's really a vicious cycle. Vicious so cycle. I, I'm with you. I'm, I'm the worst supplement taker in the world, personally. <laughs> really bad about it. So for me, naturally, when I take supplements, it tends to be not every day also, and I, I, I think that's fine. And, you know, when I have a patient who comes in with a pretty serious health condition, to make it easy for them, I'm often saying, you know, just take this every day, or we're trying to really bolster them up because they're very deficient. But I think for most people, you know, as long as you can remember to take things a few times a week, you know, I just say, okay, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, you know, think about a few days a week or put it somewhere you're going to remember it and take it when you're going to remember it. But in general, what are the supplements for women, let's say women between the ages of 25 and 55 with, you know, there's going to be some exception for increased need during pregnancy, but overall, what are the supplements in addition to our food uh, that you think women need to be fortifying, fortifying in their diets on a semi-regular basis, a few times yeah. a week, let's say. Basic multivitamin uh, that has minerals in it, your zinc and, and, and some of the other ones that can be hard to get in the diet. Um, iron, if you're menstruating, you know, uh, a 40-year-old who's had her uterus removed does not need to continue to take iron unless somebody tells her to. So if you're menstruating or pregnant, you should, you should be taking iron with your multivitamin. Otherwise, you don't need it. Um, Many, many women benefit from some additional magnesium. Um, they do. If they're prone to migraines, uh, if they're a little overweight and they're, you know, they're they're, they're, their cells are not as sensitive to insulin, many women do well with a little bit of magnesium before they go to bed. Um, if they have migraines, uh, magnesium is one of the best ways to prevent that, uh, having recurrent migraines. Um, many of us need vitamin D. The darker your skin and the further north you live, the more you need vitamin D. I do ask people just to get it checked, just get your level checked. You could take 1,000 IUs of vitamin D3 for the rest of your life and still be deficient if your levels are low. You have to take a much higher amount to get to the amount, to get you to the level you need, and then from there 1,000, 2,000 a day usually does it. But most people are going to need 1,000 to 2,000 IUs of vitamin D. You may need more if you're overweight or obese. Um, what, range, you're need what, more blood, what range do you like to see people's vitamin D in optimally? 30 to 50 nanograms per mil, um, mm -hmm. and, and I aim for 40. Um, that's where I aim, and that's according to the American Endocrine Society. That is their recommendations that, that adults um, and kids have levels around 40, and that also makes up for some of the variation that we have between different labs with their testing methods. Um, so if you're around that 40, that's going to give you the protection you need for your bones, and it's going to give you the protection you need for cardiovascular disease and immune health, et cetera. So that's what I aim for. Um, and, then, and then if you don't eat fish, if you're not a fish eater, if you don't like fish and you don't eat a lot of, you know, free-range eggs that are omega-3 rich and those kinds of things, 
you probably want to take a fish oil supplement a few times a week. Um, and again, I don't think you need to take those every day. Um, I, I think you need to take them a few times a week. You can actually get an omega-3 index done. I had mine done twice. Um, the first time it came in, it was 4.2. We want the levels to be higher than 6. Um, and I was like, how could that be? You know, like I eat salmon and I have tuna fish and, you know, that kind of stuff. And um, I had it repeated three months later. I was trying to be a little better about eating, you know, fish more consciously. And it was 4.5. So then I started taking some fish oil supplements just two, three times a week. And I still have fish like once a week. And my levels are just now over six. Um, took almost a year. So it, it, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting. We may, you know, you can measure things. Things can be measured. Um, and, and omega-3s, I have to tell you, I was just like, I don't believe that. That's why I didn't start taking fish oil. I, I had it rechecked in three months. I was like, you know, now that I know I'm being more conscious. And it's barely budged. So, yeah. You know, it's, you know, my red cell magnesium, uh, you know, I, I, I had epilepsy and, and that I, I, it converted to migraines when I got older. And, and I take a lot of magnesium, a lot of magnesium. It's the one supplement I take every single day religiously. My red blood cell magnesium, which is how you measure to see if your levels are, are within the normal range, and my blood magnesium are never barely above the bottom Rung. I mean, they're barely ever in the normal range. They're just there. And I take 800 milligrams a day, which is not what I'm recommending to your listeners, but that's how much it takes for me to prevent my migraines and also was what I was on for my seizures. And even with 800 milligrams a day, which is far more than the recommended daily allowance, my blood levels are still barely in the normal range. There is probably something about my nervous system and the way my body uses magnesium that makes me require more. And that's why I think testing is going to become more important as we go in the future, testing some of these nutrients so we're not just guessing. Well, I think also, and I would corroborate what you're saying about the magnesium, and again, everyone listening should you know, work with their individual provider to find the right level for them, but I'm finding in my practice women who have things like leg cramps, eye twitches, small heart palpitations when they are otherwise completely normal cardiac profiles, I'm finding that I'm really often in that 1,200 milligram a day range where those are quieting down. And then once they've gotten their symptoms quieted down, then I'm backing down to 600 or 800 milligrams a day for maintenance. But I don't know if it's the stress of modern living, the challenges of our diets in our bodies requiring us to have more magnesium, but I'm seeing it. And it also begs the question of the daily recommended amounts, right? I mean, we know that how the daily recommended amounts are based on really not optimal health. They're based on overt frank disease prevention. So that's something else we want to think about is what do we really need to be optimally well? And that's not always what those numbers are telling us. Do you, do you uh, feel that way as well? Well, and they're conti- yes, I do. Um, that's the answer to the question, yes. And, uh, and, and we continue to go and raise them. Um, magnesium, I think, is like third in line to be um, reevaluated for the RDA, and, and most experts believe that they will increase it. So, you know, vitamin D, a lot of people were unhappy that, that the levels weren't raised higher than they were, but in many cases we went from 200 to 600 IUs, you know, just a number of years ago. 
I think as we go along, we begin to find that we do a lot of things different today than we did 100 years ago. And in a very mixed population that is highly mobile um, and a lot of, 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 you know, intermarriages and, and, and intermingling of populations from around the world, our gene pool is very, very different. Um, and, and that nutritionally speaking, some of us just, we just may need different levels of nutrients, and many of us may need more. You know, the data that came out of the Texas schools, Dr. Davis, I believe was his name, he was the agricultural researcher, you know, they found that when you compared the food grown in the 1950s to the food grown in the 1980s to the food grown in 2000, we have had a steady, steady decline in iron and potassium and calcium um, in, in, in vitamin C in our produce, um, uh, just a steady decline, up to 38% less. So in, in a nation where people already aren't eating enough fruits and vegetables, it's really discouraging that many, many of our produce and grains are actually less nutritious than they were 30 years ago and certainly 60 and 80 years ago. And part of that is this attempt to try to get bigger, fatter produce to the market faster, even though it's bigger, it's less nutritious. And so when we say we need people eating five, seven, nine servings of vegetables and fruits per day, um, we keep increasing the numbers. Why? Because the food itself is less nutritious. So it, it, it's when we talk about the needs for people to, to supplement there's, it's so, there's so many reasons for it, um, and some of them are beyond sort of our control. And, and a last little note, uh, I, I work with a lot of um, moms who are very committed to, you know, to feeding their kids very healthy and their families, and so non-GMO is really big for them. And non-GMO cereals um, are not fortified. 99% of them are not fortified with B vitamins or iron or some of the ways that we have been able to get some of these important nutrients into poor kids and, and into young kids. So I was speaking at a large pediatric conference, and I was showing the labels on commercial uh, cereals and then on non-GMO cereals, including some of those now being made by General Mills and others, not just the ones you'd find at Trader Joe's or Whole Foods. And virtually no pediatrician realized that non-GMO cereals, by and large, are not fortified. Now, we may argue that we shouldn't be fortifying our food. That's a separate discussion. But it has been one of the ways that we have reversed horrible nutritional deficits, especially in poor communities and in poor children, is by encouraging them to have breakfast cereals that have been fortified. Now they're not being fortified. So are these pediatricians recommending that three-year-old now get a multivitamin? Where are they getting their iron? Where are they going well, to get their zinc? I mean, it's just another question. So it's a complex topic, and, and it's so simple to say you should or shouldn't supplement. And what I'm saying, I mean, I wrote a whole book, Fortify Your Life, that, yes, you did. That, that I tried to address some of these issues in because I do think it's more complicated than people realize. Well, you bring up a really important point with the non-GMO, and, and I actually didn't know that, and it's 
I'm really glad you brought that up. And we just think about neural tube defects and folic acid folic acid supplementation. And of course, there's controversy around that versus folate and MTHFR, which we won't go into now. But it has been a major public health shift. And I always find it fascinating because, on the one hand, you've got this public health shift toward fortification, which has been dramatically important, and then those same people saying supplements don't work, which is really contradictory. But it one is. Of the, um, Good point. One of the, yeah. One of the things you bring up that I think is really important is families who are wanting to do right by their kids, women who are wanting to eat better, and an increasingly restrictive food environment. And when we know that increasing restriction leads to everything from changes in the microbiome. Microbiome thrives on food diversity, and nutritional inputs require us to get a wide variety of foods. And I work with so many women who come in, and granted, they don't know what to eat because they have so many food intolerances. They have a lot of health issues going on. But what I'm seeing is people eating these mono diets. And Mono diets don't work for our bodies any more than monoculture works for growing healthy crops. Yeah. yeah. So I worry about this, and I worry about things like this new term, orthorexia, where people are increasingly restricting to quote unquote be healthy. I'm doing air quotes over here, but as a new form of an eating disorder. So I think there's so much to look at with food and really reinforces the value of getting some of these supplements, particularly if you're at a vulnerable population. And I consider people who are food restricting to be more vulnerable population. I agree. Um, you know, vegetarians can be super healthy or vegetarians can just be people who eat junk food but who've avoided meat because of ethical reasons about eating animals. Um, you know, but they're having Pop-Tarts for breakfast and, you know, they're, they, they snack on Snicker bars. And, I mean, the only thing they've done, and I've seen this. I have seen this in my practice 30-some years, and I can't tell you the number of unhealthy meat eaters and the unhealthy vegetarians I've seen. So one is not a guarantee of being healthy. But, but, but vegans in particular, um, that is growing again as a movement, um, um, veganism. And, you know, that's a new form of eating. Um, it's, historically, it's never been. The most successful vegetarian population was, was obviously in India, in the Indian subcontinent. And even there, I mean, that's where we discovered about neural tube defects, really. Lucy Wills' work when she went there in the late 1800s because so many of the women there had babies born, you know, either died early or were born with, you know, spina bifida or other abnormalities. But the Indian diet is very diverse. They eat a lot of vegetables, they eat a lot of different types of plants, and they also eat cheese and ghee and, and milk. And I mean, so they, they had a lot of animal sources. But veganism is something very new. There is no, there were no vegan hunter-gatherer populations. Um, there were no vegetarian hunter-gatherer populations. Let's be clear, that's not how we evolved. But when you have vegans, um, I do really concern. I'm I'm really concerned about kids that are being raised vegan. Um, they have to be supplemented. You've got to give them supplements. They're they're going to have to have B12. And and there's this misperception that vegans think that B12 in supplements come from animals. No, B12. It doesn't matter where it comes from. Is made from bacteria. Whether it's in an animal or in in you or or yeah. any. I mean, it's made by bacteria. So when you're buying a B12 supplement, if you're a vegan, um, 
it was just made by bacteria. That's all it was made from. And it's, to- you know, you're going to get bacteria if you eat an apple. So, so I think there's been a lot of misinformation in the public as well. And so trying to help um, people understand that supplements are not bad. I don't try to convince somebody who's a vegan not to be a vegan. Uh, that's not, that's their life and their choice. My, my role as a physician is to partner with them so that they can experience the best health they can while living, living the lifestyle that they have chosen for themselves uh, and to be very respectful of that. But, but let's be clear, you're not going to be healthy eventually. Most of us, if we ate animal products before, you've got enough B12 stored up in your liver in that. I mean, you could be many, many years before you became deficient, many, many years, but not so for a child. Not, not a child. They don't have years of eating animal products to have built up a store. They've got to have B12 supplements. But I'm, you know, you know me, Alisa. We've known each other a long time. I, I, I am. I think people are over, overly worried about their diet, overly prescriptive. It's why I love going to France and Italy. I love when I go there. There's no macronutrient breakdown on the menu. They're not putting calories on it. People are not obsessing about it. They have smaller portions. They eat for hours at dinner, and it's delicious food. And, and here, it's like I go out with my friends, and it's like, well, I, you know, where's the salmon from? Is it Atlantic? Was it wild-caught? Is it farmed? I, I, I'm, I, eventually, I'm just like, please eat a salad. Just get a salad. I mean, you're making this poor waitress's life crazy. It's like people can't just enjoy their food. Eat, eat a variety of plants. Have some animal meat. Please make sure it was humanely raised. Eat less and eat better quality. Have some fish or seafood in your diet. You need those omega-3s. Eat it as whole as possible. Don't eat it processed. Eat it as whole as it can possibly be. Enjoy it. Don't obsess about it. And perhaps even somewhere along the line, have a quiet prayer of thanks and gratitude you know, my grandma used to say, you know, bless this food that we're about to eat and the hands that prepared it. And when she meant the preparation, she didn't just mean her. She meant everybody anywhere in the whole production of food that had anything to do with planting the seed or milking the cow. You know, for me, that's, that's where it is. No processed crap, nothing that comes out of a box. You know, things that are made wholesome, shop the outside of the grocery store, don't obsess about it. Don't worry so much about it. Make it taste good. Quit snacking. Have an apple if you have to have a snack. Buy organic when possible. Um, and, and don't worry so much about every little thing you put into your body. If you follow those basic rules, you're going to be okay nutritionally. But even then, you still may need to take a supplement, just for the record, because you probably See, I adore you and I am so grateful for this long friendship and your support and your inspiration. I want to ask you one more question. Sure. You've done you've done a lot of living and you're a young woman. You've raised kids as I mean you were going through med school as the new term now is indie mom, not single mom. You were going through med school, raising coach as a mom on your own. You are the woman who pioneered bringing herbs and integrative medicine to the forefront of the academic world, the world in general here in the U.S., you have done a lot. And you've also 
and I know you've shared this publicly, so I'm not divulging any secrets here, but you've dealt with, um, as you mentioned, epilepsy, um, an advanced and serious cancer diagnosis, and I know you personally, so I know you place a really high value on the important things in life. I remember when I started med school, you sent me an email one day, and I actually printed it out, and I had it on my desk. You probably don't even know this, in a little frame for all of med school, and the email said, baby girl, say no, 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 no to everything that comes across your plate except med school. Basically, that's what it said. And um, so my question for you is, you know, in the spirit of not worrying so much, in the spirit of enjoying life, enjoying our food, you also wrote a really beautiful book called Life is Your Best Medicine. And for the women who are listening, whether they are new moms you know, struggling to keep up with life, women in their 30s who are starting to blossom in their careers and trying to balance it all, or women entering into their more, you know, they're entering into their more wisdom years and they want to make the most of life. What's your advice, if you will, on making life your best medicine? You know, um, that phrase actually was given to me by my grandmother, who was my, you know, dearest friend, but she... We were coming back from Medicine Lodge, Kansas, and she was driving her pickup truck, and she had her jeans on and this old shirt, you know, and she looked over, and she said, baby girl. That's why I use that expression a lot. She said, baby girl, you know, when you were born, you were set on a path, and that path is your medicine road. And everything you do in your life, the way you eat, the way you think, the way you treat other people, it's, it's your medicine, good or bad, but it's your medicine road. And I I thought about that a lot when I got older, not when I was young because it didn't make much sense. But what she was trying to tell me, that this is your one precious life. This is your one precious life. And every choice you make, every choice you make affects you, impacts you. You know, So, so be thoughtful about where you're putting your feet as you walk along this journey. I think for women, um, don't try to be everything to everybody. You can't, you know, and and you don't take care of you so you can be a better mom. You take care of you because you are worth taking care of, just you. You are a child of God, a child of nature. You you deserve to be here, And, and, and be tender with yourself. You know, so many times I think women, we're so hard on ourselves for, you know, we're always critiquing ourselves and we critique other women. It's like, don't do that, you know? When I, um, when I was getting my radiation treatment, and it was pretty brutal at the end, I mean very brutal at the end, I, was, uh, I, I, could, hardly, I could hardly pee. I mean, uh, seriously, it was like to urinate was like just shards of glass. And they wanted to hospitalize me um, for pain control, and I didn't want to be hospitalized. I wanted to come back to my ranch each day with my, with my horses and my dogs and my chickens and everything, and... Jim said to me, my husband said, you know, you're talking to yourself. And I said, what? And he said, well, when you go to the bathroom, I hear you in there. And he said, it breaks my heart, but also you're talking to yourself like you talk to your children. And I didn't even realize it, Aviva, but when I was in there crying, trying to go to the bathroom, just crying, it was so painful, I couldn't even imagine anything more painful. I was saying to myself things like, it's okay, baby girl, it's okay. It's going to pass. You're okay, sweetheart, it's okay. 
breathe deep. It'll pass. And what I guess what I guess that meant to me when he pointed it out, because I was so not even conscious of it, was that I was mothering myself. I was loving myself in the same way I loved my children. I was talking to me in the same way I would talk to a, a frightened or, or child that was in pain with that same love and care. And I realized how powerful that is when we can turn that maternal love and instinct that we have for our children and we can give it to ourselves. You know, I, I had a plant that I, I struggled to have grow here in my garden. And the year that I went through all that treatment, my motherwort exploded in the garden. It just, I had so much my favorite herb. My favorite herb of all herbs. And when I saw it growing, like where I struggled for it to grow, and it just, I had it everywhere, it like took over the bed, I thought it was because I needed mothering. Mm. And, and I realized that for many of us, you know, when we're going through this journey, there's a lot of things we take on that that are not ours to carry. We carry a lot of other people's stuff. And at some point, we just have to sort of say, you know, with loving compassion, this is your stuff. It's not mine. I have to carry my own stuff in this life. And that's enough to carry. Just carrying our own stuff a lot. I love you. You're... I love you, too. Oh, thank you. You're... Such a remarkable human being, and I could talk to you all day. I think we should just do this every week and <laughs> we <could> just chat. <laughs> I was, uh, as I was telling you earlier, Tori Hudson. And I thought we should create a show and call it the Brew instead of the View. <laughs> <laughs> now I'd want to be on that show. Oh, you would be on uh, that and just, show. And just for your listeners, um, just um, also how grateful we all are, Aviva, that you're in the world and that you're doing the work that you do. You're a precious, precious soul and a strong woman and a dear friend. And I Thank really, you, really enjoyed my time with you today. Thank you, Beauty. Let's tell, let's tell our listeners, too, how they can find you. So you have some beautiful books, Fortify Your Life, Healthy at Home, which is really a spectacular self-care book, and Life is Your Best Medicine, which I particularly enjoyed reading, even though I've known you for, what, 25 years now, um, there were stories in there that, well, I listened, as I read the book, of course, I could hear your voice because I know your voice in my head, like the back of my hand, but um, there were stories in there just to hear you tell about your own path, just so delightful, that made me laugh, made me cry, so I, I highly recommend all of them. How can How can our listeners best find you? Well, I do have a Facebook page that I do write on, and I have a website, which I'm not that great about keeping up with with my newsletters, but I do try. Um, it's drlodog.com, drlodog.com. And, of course, if you ever want to just, you know, come for a weekend to my ranch, I do have um, – I only do two or three every summer – um, but they're, they're weekend retreats. I've got a women's retreat coming up, and we play out in the gardens, and we do, uh, we do some ceremony, and we hang out um, and just do a deep dive into women's health and, and, and being, being healthy women. And we do those out here at my beautiful ranch up in northern New Mexico. And so those are beautiful. But 
you know that that's how that's that's how you find me. I'm not easy to find. I live out in the middle of a national forest. Literally, I'm landlocked in the middle of a national forest. I'm not easy to find, and um, and I try to communicate through my Facebook and I try to communicate through my books and my work. But I'm moving into more of the winter time of my life now, so I'm maybe not so easy to find anymore. Well, for those of you who are listening, I can't. Speak highly enough of this woman on every level. She is my sister. She is spiritual strength. She's somebody who I call in my life when I have personal questions and times of struggle or somebody who I am always, she's always the first one I email if I have an herbal question, supplement question, clinic, something that comes up because I know her level of truth and integrity and quality. So please dial into her and if you've loved this show and you love this woman, drop a comment in the comments section because that's how more women will get to hear Tirone's wisdom about supplements and life and find her too. Thank you, T, for joining me today, and I hope we get to have you on the show again. Thank you. Best. Mwah. My best. My love. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Natural MD Radio. If you did, please go to avivaram.com and join the conversation about the show on my blog. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. It's free and it's jam-packed with powerful tips to help you take back your health naturally. That's avivaram.com. Take care and see you next time.